Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Canada's ambassador to the U.S. is calling it quits. A closer look at just how vital that position is and where Canada-U.S. relations go from here. Also, a fascinating new book takes a closer look at how the internet and technology is changing the English language itself. Plus, should vegan products be able to use terms like burger, milk, and cheese? As plant-based protein products become more popular, the battle over words is heating up. I leave here uh, with some pride in what we have accomplished Um, Clearly, there are still challenges in front of us. The the globe is a very uncertain place right now, Uh, but I am looking forward to getting uh, back to Canada, back to Toronto. Uh, That is the voice of soon-to-be former ambassador to the United States, David McNaughton, announcing today... Uh, news conference at the Canadian Embassy in Washington uh, that he is going to step down from the position at the end of summer. So he is still for now technically the ambassador to the United States, but uh, afterward that that position will be vacant. And as we've seen uh, over the past couple of years, it's clearly a very important position. Obviously, the Canada-U.S. relationship is very important. Now, it's interesting because, of course, uh, the U.S. is looking for a new ambassador to Canada. Uh, because the former ambassador to Canada is uh, now the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. So it's interesting that we've got these vacancies at this moment. It's also significant, of course, because Canada's uh, on the verge of a federal election. And we may get a change in government. So is this the kind of thing maybe that should hold off until the next election? Trying to balance those political realities with the need to have somebody in this important position. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, David McNaughton's time as ambassador and where we go from here. Very pleased to welcome the program, Sarah Goldfeder, a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, also a principal at Earnscliffe Strategy Group. Sarah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, these are, by nature, to some extent, partisan appointments, but uh, it certainly appears as though there, there's been widespread praise here today for, for David McNaughton. Sure, and if you think about his predecessor as well, you know, Gary Dewar was an right. NDP premier, and, and he was appointed by a conservative government. So I think less partisan um, when it's a Canadian ambassador to the U.S. than the other way around. But yes, there's definitely a sense that um, David McNaughton had a lot of water to carry while he's been down in Washington the last four years. Yeah, it's obviously a high-profile position, an important one. I mean, at the same time, the you know the direction of policy and how we approach the U.S. it ultimately falls to those in Ottawa. The person in Washington is is the voice of of the government. But I mean, how important is the job? 
I, I think it is a more important job for Canada in many ways than um, it might appear at first blush because the relationship is so important and the ambassador to the U.S. has a much higher profile than any of the other ambassadors um, that, that are representing Canada around the world. They are present in, and as you'll recall, David McNaughton's been part of almost every cabinet retreat. He's, especially during the NAFTA negotiations, he was present in the PMO uh, reporting back to Ottawa with high frequency as things were moving quite quickly down in the U.S. So it, especially in the in the lens of the last few years, his role has been incredibly important. But regardless of who has been down there, the team and the legislative affairs team that are in the Canadian Embassy right down the road from Capitol Hill in a prime piece of state in Washington, D.C., I mean, they do a lot of incredible work that will continue to be done under Kristen Hillman, who's been an incredible deputy from everything that I've heard. Yeah, a lot of the job, I would imagine, then is is not just uh, being a voice for for Canada, but building those relationships uh, that that uh, American lawmakers know that this is somebody they can come talk to, uh, that this person can make a convincing case to those uh, American lawmakers. Th- those those relationships seem crucial to to the job. They absolutely are, and it's a really it's tricky, I think, um, and it's hard. It's easy to remember or easy to forget this when you're up in Ottawa that the U.S. ambassador to Canada is such a large presence in the kind of in the Ottawa sphere, at least, um, but even across Canada. Whereas the Canadian ambassador to the U.S. is one of 150 plus ambassadors in Washington D.C. all fighting for attention. And while Canada does have a great piece of real estate, does have a lot of longstanding relationships, has a lot of lawmakers who have, you know, one of their top, their state's top trade relationships is with Canada, they still have to fight to get some space in Washington in a way that the U.S. um, envoy to to Ottawa doesn't necessarily have to. So, like, to keep those relationships going and and to and to keep your dance card at the top of everybody's list is really important in yeah. Washington. And I would imagine it's a tricky balance, too, because you don't want to upset the apple cart. You don't want to upset the wrong people. You want to have a good read on what the mood is in Washington, how the, uh, you know, how the White House is feeling about an issue, how Congress is feeling about an issue. Uh, and I, I can imagine it would be pretty delicate at times. Well, and I think Canada's in an interesting position because while many of kind of the, the political values and leanings of Canada tend towards the Democratic Party in the U.S., the reality is that Canada generally does better in, um, in trade and in other relationship aspects with a Republican administration in the White House and with Republican lawmakers. So you have to be able to communicate both with Democrats and Republicans and find areas of alignment and, and in many ways create your own bipartisan force in the United States to push for Canadian issues. Mm-hmm. Does it seem as though the new ambassador, whoever that is, that there will be an interim ambassador appointed uh, until after the election, but is it going to be easier now for this, this new ambassador? It kind of feels like we've dealt with the hard stuff, uh, the, 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 you know, negotiating a new trade deal, the, the whole business with the, uh, the, the, the tariffs, or are, are there still some important issues that, that are going to need to be dealt with? I think there's always issues to be dealt with. I think Gary Dewar would have told you that, that you know, he got rid of a lot of those really pesky issues that they've been working on for, for decades when he went down to Washington, and yet there was a whole new slew ready for McNaughton when he got there. So I think there'll probably be new issues to work on. There'll be some old issues, uh, hardy perennials that come up again and again in the relationship. You know, having a seasoned, um, you know, seasoned diplomat in the role of Chargé d'Affaires with you know, Kristen Hillman fulfilling that role for the, for the meantime, I think is a great solution. 
You've got kind of a quiet period right now in the United States, so Congress has left for, for the month of August. They're going to come back in September. There's a lot of domestic issues they're going to be focused on in September. There's not going to be a lot of oxygen for issues that matter to Canada, um, and especially not in that very short period of time before Canada enters into a caretaker government, and then there's not much that an ambassador can do down there anyway for the next you know six weeks or so until you've got a new government in effect, and then you appoint a new envoy, and things you know move along as they do in the cycle. And meanwhile, with any luck, we'll also have a new U.S. envoy appointed up here in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting coincidence, and I mean, I'm not suggesting there's any connection, but uh, we, we've obviously got a couple of key vacancies. We don't have an ambassador to China. We're dealing with, uh, obviously, a difficult situation when it comes to China, uh, and we won't have an ambassador to the U.S. as well. I mean, is... How problematic is this, or or is that reading too much into the situation? I think the situation in China is much different than the situation in the U.S. The reality with the United States is that the relationships into all the different executive branch departments that really govern the United States, um, th- those relationships are good um, across you know across uh, the you know the bureaucracies within Canada and the United States. The relationships with lawmakers are you know they run deep. It's not just the one person that had those relationships. So and there, you can't forget the number of consul generals that you have in the United States who are very active in the regions that they're involved in. And so it's not just one person carrying that piece, you know, that water. Whereas in China, I think you have a much different scenario. You have a truly problematic relationship with somebody that, you know, it, it's a country that we really are having a hard time coming to, coming to terms with. You don't have that issue in the United States. In the United States, you have a, you have a partner and an ally, even if you have difficult aspects of the relationship. It, it's a completely different type of relationship in the end. I suppose so. And, and at this point, especially with the U.S. position, I guess it just makes sense that this, this decision on a permanent ambassador, that that would wait until after the election. I would think so. I, I, I can't think of a great reason to put somebody down there in a rush, especially when you don't know who the U.S. ambassador is going to be to Ottawa yet. Um, and like one of the great relationships of all time was the ambassadorships of David Jacobson and Gary Dewar. The two of them got a lot done behind the scenes because they came in at almost the same time. They had a good relationship, um, and they were able to get a lot of things unstuck that were stuck within either the Canadian or the American um, kind of halls of government. So, you know, with any luck, we'll see another great pairing come out of this. Uh, I think you'll probably see timing quite similar on both sides, just because of the nature of the political calendar this year. All right. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Sarah, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. No problem. Thank you. All right. Take care. That is Sarah Goldfeder, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, principal with Ernst Cliff Strategy Group. Uh, her thoughts on the importance of this role and, and what I think seems to be a consensus uh, of the job that David McNaughton did in that position. So quote here today from former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, of course, uh, advised the government during the NAFTA negotiations, uh, said, quote, this is not an easy mandate operating in that new environment down there. I dealt with him, Dave McNaughton, quite frequently in the NAFTA negotiations, and I found him to be knowledgeable, serious, and good counsel. Just if you look at the history of language, or even the history of the English language... You know, by comparison, the Internet has been around for a very relatively small period of time in the grand scheme of things. But the Internet and technology is clearly having a profound impact on language. And and maybe it's hard to see in the here and now. And perhaps it's something that 50 or 100 years from now will reflect back on the significant changes in the English language and how we communicate. But English, I suppose, or any language is, is always evolving. But it's really interesting to think about the, the impact 
of technology. Well, it's the subject of a new book. It's called Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Joining us on the line is the author of the book, Gretchen McCulloch, is an internet linguist and the resident linguist at Wired. Gretchen, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on the show. Was it something in particular that sparked this book for you, or we had some kind of you know linguistic tipping point, as it were? Well, I like to say that I can't really turn the linguist part of my brain off. So, you know, if I'm out at the pub talking to somebody, uh, I might be analyzing their vowels at the same time. And I spend a lot of time on the Internet, as a lot of us do. And it just it struck me that there were, you know, things going on here with punctuation, especially developing, you know, irony, ways of expressing irony and punctuation that people hadn't really written about that much. I think to a lot of people, you know, it feels as though it's not that the language is changing or evolving, but it's eroding, right? That we've kind of given up on a lot of the formalities of the English language. Well, it's really easy to project, you know, your anxieties about the future or, you know, the the future of the world or what kids are doing on the form of a language people used to use them. But from another perspective, it's also really interesting. And people have been wishing, for example, to have an irony punctuation mark there are proposals for this and wishes for this that go back to the 1500s. And so the fact that we've now succeeded at being able to represent irony in writing, you know, is something that, that English speakers have been trying to do at some level for hundreds of years. I wonder, too, at some level, whether, you know, it's, it's so much the English language is changing or that almost like Internet language or Internet English is almost like its own language. Well, it's... What I like to see it as is as an expansion of the genre of informal writing. So we had informal writing before the Internet as well, things like letters and diaries and postcards, but it was a lot less common and people were a lot less exposed to other informal writing from each other. And instead, a lot of those informal conversations happened via speech. Uh, whereas now that we have uh, a lot of those conversations happening in writing, we're actually doing a lot more writing than the average person would have done, say, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. If you graduated from school um, and you didn't become a professional writer, the longest thing you might have written might have been a grocery list. So, yeah, if we transcribed all of our conversations from a, a generation or generations ago, we, we would see probably much the same thing. Exactly. And writing, has, you know, speech has always had formal and informal versions. You know, the way you talk if you're giving a, a eulogy or something like that, it's going to be different from how you talk in a job interview or for how you talk to your dog. And so writing can also have formal and informal varieties and, you know, be sort of expanded to take into all these different, all these different consider- considerations. It's interesting, too, the significance of things like all caps. I mean, as long as we've had the printed word, we've been able to <laughs> write in, in all caps, I guess, if, if we were so inclined. But, you know, the, the idea now that in the Internet, the digital age, that it, that it conveys anger or, or it conveys something specific, is that relatively new? Well, it's really interesting because there are citations for all caps being a form of emphasis that do go back, you know, at least uh, 100 years, if not earlier. I found one in uh, a book by Ella Montgomery, uh, which is, you know, not exactly someone you think of when you think of the Internet. Um, but what's interesting is that in this era, what was more common for emphasis in informal writing was underlines and multiple underlines. People went wild with the underlines uh, and writing in different colors of ink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some ways, the digital era, for all that it's expanded some areas, has actually made it more difficult to do this kind of thing. If you want to underline uh, your text message, a word in your text messages five times, you just can't do it these days. Uh, and so you kind of need all caps because you don't have as many underline options as people used to have. So all caps expanded into this space that didn't have as many formatting options 
uh, especially on the early internet and even in modern social media sites and text messages. What about the global reach uh, of the internet and social media? That uh, does it take away from the way that language has evolved in in a more isolated way, where you have regional dialects and, and phrases and expressions? Is is it eroding that at all? This is something that's been a common concern about mass media. Uh, from the newspaper, which was a mass media, of course, of its time, to the radio, to the television, people kept predicting at the time, and this is the impetus for a lot of early dialect surveys, you know, we've got to record these, these regional dialects before the newspaper wipes them out. Uh, and it turned out that, you know, there, there were some changes with the newspaper, but the newspaper didn't completely wipe out regional dialects. And the Internet doesn't seem to be doing so either. People, if you look at how people communicate on Twitter, for example, with geotagged tweets, you can spot... Uh, you know, lexical differences, you know, so let's say you have, you know, switch from, from pop versus soda across the U.S. Canadian border, uh, these kinds of things where people do talk more like the people that are around them geographically than they do some sort of global homogenized voice. I wonder too for future linguists, um, you know, so much of the way we communicate, it, it, I mean, it's not designed to last. I don't know what, what kind of records will still exist for linguists who are studying uh, our, our era in, you know, 100 years from now, for example, we can go back and we can find books and written words from, you know, from hundreds of years ago. How does, how does it change the way that, that linguistics is studied? Well, it's interesting because in many things in the historical era, we don't necessarily have written records. So we might have, uh, you know, like a handful of books that were published in a given year and have no way of of reconstructing how people were talking to each other informally that year. And it seems like it's such a formal era just because it's only formal records that were that persisted. Uh, whereas in this era, you know, assuming that the websites get archived somehow, which is still uh, a fairly big assumption, uh, we do potentially have access to written records of how ordinary people communicated with each other uh, and not just the kind of stuff that makes its way into an edited book. Well, and it's not as though books have gone away, right? I mean, I'm sorry, books yeah. have gone away. I wrote a book. <laughs> you, like, you did, exactly. I'm not writing a book. <laughs> Right, I mean, but it is, yeah, it, it is certainly different, and it, not necessarily different in a bad way, I guess, is maybe part of what, what you're trying to convey to people, right? Change no, exactly. is, is change. You know, and as you were saying a few minutes ago, uh, you know, in 100 years or, uh, you know, 200 years, people are going to look back on this era like we now look back at, say, say, the printing press and say, wow, all this disruption, wasn't it so great? It was so cool. It did all these great things. Well, people are going to look back at our era and say, wow, it was so interesting. We could, we could be that excited now. We don't have to be annoyed about it. But again, in the field of linguistics now, I mean, is, is it recognized for the powerful force that it is? Uh, there, is a, there is a journal about uh, language on the Internet called Language at Internet with the at sign, uh, which has been publishing since 2004. So uh, there's, you know, increasing awareness that Internet language is interesting. Um, although, of course, there's also, you know, plenty of work on, on traditional kinds of language as well. And does and it's an interesting example of the at sign. We all know what that means, uh, and and it's shorthand for the word. Do do those kinds of symbols, do emojis? I mean, can they actually become part of the language? I mean, is that is that even is it even possible? The analogy that I like to think of when it comes to emoji is in terms of gesture. So gestures are important for communication, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a substitute for for words. It's more like they, they supplement them. So if you think of saying to someone, good job, with a thumbs up, that's going to mean something different from saying, good job, with a middle finger. <laughs> and <laughs> that's true whether you do those, the thumbs up and the middle finger as gestures or whether you do them as emoji. Right, because the idea that, you know, that someday someone would write a book where they're using 
that, whether they're using emojis, whether they're using the at sign, or they're using LOL, all of these kinds of things, it, does, it, does it get to that point where, it, where what seems so informal at some point becomes the formal? Well, I like to think of it in terms of, you know, the exclamation mark. Very, you know, pretty formal piece of punctuation. It's on all your keyboards. Nobody says the exclamation mark isn't part of the standard set of punctuation repertoire in English. And yet, if you look at how often people actually use an exclamation mark in formal writing, you know, a scientific paper doesn't get to put exclamation marks. Even if the authors are very excited by their <laughs> right. results, they need to reserve those exclamation marks for something other than the scientific paper. You know, newspapers don't necessarily put sci- uh, exclamation marks in their headlines. They could, but that's not what the convention is for them to do. You know, if, you write a, if you write a novel, you might have exclamation marks in dialogue, but you don't want to put one every sentence because, again, that's really not what the convention is for a novel. So the thing about formal writing is that it's, or formal language in general, is that it removes to a certain extent the speaker from the speech. It makes it disembodied. It's a, it's a conduit for the news. It's not the news itself. Just like a news anchor is supposed to have this sort of narrow emotional range. The news anchor doesn't get to be excited or shouting about the news. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they could do it, but it's not really what the convention is. Uh, you don't conventionally put exclamation marks in your formal writing, not because of any sort of standardness, but because formal writing itself is just not that excited and is not that emotional. So if you can't even get a perfectly standard exclamation mark into your scientific paper, I don't think we're going to see emoji there anytime soon. No, probably not. But it's interesting. that I mean, we do have a lot of gatekeepers in that sense, in terms of what goes into a journal or in terms of what goes into the dictionary. But at the same time, no one's really in charge of language, right, which is also fascinating. Exactly. That's what's really interesting about a project like the dictionary, which a lot of people think of as, oh, here's this thing that tells me what I can and cannot say. But a dictionary is actually following behind genuine usage and trying to catch up with what people are saying and just record that so that if you're confused, you know, you have something you can look up or that you could have something as a record for an earlier era. So it's, it's more about these authorities and these reference works trying to catch up to the changes that people have been constantly doing. And that's true with or without the Internet. It is quite fascinating. The book is called Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Uh, Gretchen McCulloch is a resident linguist at Wired and author of the new book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. And it's pretty interesting when you think about the impact that technology and social media, the internet, that it's having on language and how we communicate. Well, the story came up last week, and I wanted to come back to, to this conversation because I, I do think this is uh, an important debate, and we're probably going to see more of it uh, as some of these so-called alternatives uh, to meat products continue to grow in popularity. Obviously, Beyond Meat, this company that is made plant-based, you could argue simulated meat products, burgers, etc., has, has taken off. It's, it's been a huge success. A&W, Burger King have embraced these products. The story today that Subway is testing out a Beyond Meatball Marinara sub. I mean, clearly there's, there's a demand for this. Not necessarily for me, but again, I mean, if, if that's something people want to partake in, that's, that's certainly their decision. But the question of whether these kinds of products should be able to describe themselves as burgers or meatball subs 
or milk even there's been controversy in some jurisdictions where they've there's been an attempt to ban products like almond milk from using the term milk here in canada uh there's been stories as of late about a crackdown by the canadian food inspection agency on restaurants vegan restaurants that are using these terms burger cheese etc is this a free speech issue though do we need the government to be the word police or is this about ensuring that consumers are informed? Are people really being tricked by the word burger? If you're in a vegan restaurant and the menu says everything on this menu is 100% vegan. To me, it's pretty clear that you're not getting a beef hamburger. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program Anna Pippis, who is a Vancouver lawyer, also director of the Plant-Based Policy Center. And they're keeping a close eye on all of this. Anna, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Um, I mean, how, how widespread is this in terms of the, the CFIA and, and the fact that they're contacting restaurants directly over this? Yeah, this is actually a fairly common problem. We haven't been hearing a huge amount about it, but that's because for the most part, the CFIA contacts a business. It might be a restaurant or it might be a company that's uh, stocking their products in supermarkets and they contact them about a labeling issue or in some cases the companies preemptively contact the CFIA. Um, But at the end of the day, it's actually a, a quite a big issue that we haven't heard a lot about, but that I agree with you. We'll continue to hear more and more about as these products grow in popularity. Well, and they clearly are growing in popularity, aren't they? They are. They're growing in popularity. People are not necessarily going vegan, but looking to include more plant-based foods in their diets. And that's only going to continue because eating more plant-based foods is good for our health. It's good for the planet. Um, and these are two really hot button issues right now that more and more, you know, those of us who live, especially in Canada, where we maybe have an oversized environmental footprint or are have larger um, chronic disease issues with cancer, heart disease, some of these preventable lifestyle diseases, we're looking to shake up the way we eat. And a lot of us are turning to plant-based foods. It almost feels like there's a bit of a double standard here where we've got some pretty big corporations. I mean, Burger King, A&W, Tim Hortons, um, that, that they're getting away with selling these products and calling them burgers. But it seems like the CFIA isn't going after them, that it's been much smaller cafes and restaurants that have been singled out here. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when we really look at the labels or at the menus, we might find that they, the words aren't what we've seen. So if you go into a supermarket and you look at a look at a carton of soy milk or almond milk, look more closely. It doesn't say soy milk or almond milk. What it actually says is probably something like soy beverage, almond beverage. Um, in the case of, let's say, A&W on its marketing, it says 100% plant-based. It's got all of these modifiers that have passed the CFIA muster. But Yes, I agree with you. It's a problem because the CFIA doesn't have standards that say, you know, here's the terms you can use, which would be better. Certainly, there's still a a bit of a language policing issue going on, but at least there would be some clarity around what you can say. But what is happening, actually, is we've got this ad hoc enforcement system where the CFIA seems to be only going after people in response to complaints and then taking it really on a case-by-case basis. So the result is that especially smaller businesses are very confused about about what they're allowed to do, and they're not even really able to get clarity when they do reach out to the CFIA and say, well, can I put this on my label? 
the CFA's response has, well, I've seen them respond and just say, well, essentially, you know, go ahead and put it on your label. And if we, we get a complaint, we'll come in, we'll come in, enforce the law on you. But for small producers, this can be very prohibitive because they've got costs to design their labels and to printing them up. And for a very small business, this can be, you know, make or break them. What about the arguments, and, and I've heard it in this debate, that, that the term burger means something specific. The term cheese means something specific. The term milk means something specific. Uh, and that uh, vegan restaurants or, or those who are offering vegan alternatives should come up with a different term to use. Yeah, I understand that. And it does mean something specific. And that's precisely why we, I think we should be using these terms on labels. Because let's say I want to purchase yogurt, but for whatever reason, maybe lactose intolerance, maybe concern about the environmental footprint of dairy farming, I want to try some of the popular coconut-based yogurts. Okay, well, I'm looking for a yogurt. It's yogurt. It's going to fill the role of yogurt in my life, in my breakfast world. And so I go to the store and I'm looking for a coconut yogurt. But instead of actually looking for coconut yogurt on the label, I have to try to stand there in front of all the yogurt-looking cartons and figure out, okay, which of these, you know, the labels are going to say creamy, tangy, cultured, coconut-based product. You know, they can't, because it doesn't say yogurt, that's very confusing for me. So it becomes a game where both producers and consumers are sort of trying to speak in code. Because for us, it is yogurt or milk or burgers or cheese or whatever it is. We're using it in the same way and it fills the same role. We're just looking to have it made from different ingredients for whatever reason. And so I think because we use the language in this way, we have to look at the common uses. If everyone's calling it soy beverage, I mean soy milk, why are you labeling it soy beverage? Everybody knows it's soy milk. So, you know, let's look at how people are actually using language. Right. And so if if the term vegan is there, if a restaurant says we have a vegan burger for sale and we have vegan cheese that we use on that burger, do you think that is clear enough to the consumer as to what that is or isn't? I think it is. I think that's exactly what we need. We need modifiers to tell us what this product is made out of. Um, And that goes for something like, let's say, we have goat cheese. Well, we don't just simply call it cheese and then make people decipher it. It should say goat cheese, cow cheese. It should say what is the source of this product. It's funny because I think as a society, we're used to thinking about cow's milk, cow's cheese as being sort of the default milk for humans. But really, if you think about it, the default milk for humans is human breast milk. So any other type of milk, it makes sense, I think, to use modifiers. And why not make it more clear for people? This is what the product is. This is where it came from. This is what you're getting. And just make sure that because I think that when people are producing vegan options, they're not trying to trick people. As a matter of fact, they're trying to tell people, look, I am providing you with this vegan alternative. It's a marketing advantage. So it doesn't it doesn't seem to be a problem that consumers are selling, you know, beyond burgers and trying to convince people or trick people into thinking they're made out of cows. Quite the opposite. They're marketing it left, right and center. So, yes, I think that simply by using some some simple modifiers and simple adjectives, I think um, this is only a benefit to the marketplace. People can go out and look, find what they're looking for easily and not be confused. Do you think there's some pressure from from industry, the beef industry or dairy industry that they're trying to protect their turf in a way? 
I do think that's what's what's really going on here. Um, we're seeing this not only in Canada, but in the United States, this is really playing out in a big way as the the dairy, the sort of the vegan products become more and more delicious and available and sort of a viable alternative to this is really vegan food 2.0. I, I think it is a threat to some of these industries. And we're seeing um, attempts to pass legislation to censor these kinds of terms. And it really seems to be a political issue more than an actual case of consumer confusion. Well, and, and is there, are there some constitutional issues then at play here, potentially? That's right, exactly. So we have a right to freedom of expression in this country. It's protected in our Constitution. And freedom of expression includes not only the right to be able to express ourselves, but it also includes the right to be able to receive communication. That's a really, really important charter right in any democracy. So when the government wants to limit the words that we can use as entrepreneurs, as consumers, as business people, it has to have a really good reason for doing so. And in this case, it doesn't seem like there really is any good reason. Well, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I find it odd that this is is controversial, uh, mm-hmm. or that that we're, people seem to believe that certain industries have a have a monopoly on on certain terms. I, I think that this this can all coexist. Yes, exactly. The government is not in the business of promoting the dairy industry or the burger industry. It's simply in the business of ensuring that labels are clear for consumers. So I do think it's overstepping a little bit when it's preventing these small companies from being able to use terms that nobody is really confused by. All right. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. More at plantfoodscouncil.org. Anna, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's been a great, great time. All right. Anna Pippis is director of the Plant-Based Policy Center, also a, a Vancouver lawyer. So suggesting that there may be some, some court challenges uh, that, that result from this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.